that connection the client feels with the therapist is the strongest predictor of success in therapy. So it's having a therapy animal in the room is kind of like a shortcut. everyone, and welcome to Episode 9, Part 1 of Dog Lab. This is Brian Burton. Today we have Dr. Catherine Compitis here to discuss two important topics, animal-assisted therapy and coping with pet grief. Due to the importance of both subjects, we have decided to break this into two parts, with the first episode exploring animal-assisted therapy and the next episode focusing on coping with losing a pet, which will be released early next week. Animal-assisted therapy as a concept has become popular in recent years. But what actually is it? And what is the difference between animal-assisted therapy, animal-assisted activities, and animal-assisted education? And in terms of animal-assisted therapy, if you are a current licensed professional or somebody who uses a licensed professional for psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, speech therapy, or even physiotherapy, to name a few, how do you responsibly integrate a dog or other animal into these sessions so that it's beneficial for the humans, but also fair for the animal? That's what Dr. Catherine Compitus is here to help us with. Dr. Catherine Compitus is a licensed clinical social worker in New York. Her research focuses primarily on clinical social work, the social determinants of health, and the human-animal bond. She is also the founder and chairman of Surrey Hills Sanctuary, a nonprofit organization providing veterinary social work services, including trauma-informed animal-assisted therapy for abuse survivors. Catherine has a master's degree in social work from NYU and also earned her master's in education as well as animal behavior and conservation from Hunter College. She received her doctorate in social welfare and clinical social work from New York University. Catherine is especially interested in crisis intervention as it relates to the human-animal bond. Recently, she has published articles on the clinician's experience of conducting animal-assisted therapy and the welfare of therapy animals. She is the author of the Zuaya blog at Psychology Today, discussing the myriad of benefits that we get from interacting with animals. She designed and currently teaches the Human-Animal Bond course at New York University's Silver School of Social Work. Catherine was a teacher prior to becoming a social worker and has almost 20 years of experience working with children and families. Catherine is currently an adjunct lecturer at New York University, Fordham University, and Columbia University, and owns Wiggly Pups in New York City, providing training, daycare, and boarding services. So here is Dr. Catherine Compitus. Dr. Catherine Compitus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So can you define animal-assisted therapy for us and for everyone on here? I think most people have probably heard of like therapy dogs and those types of things, but what are like the main goals of animal-assisted therapy? So that way we can tee off this part of the conversation and everyone's kind of starting from the same place in terms of our definition. Sure. Absolutely. There's there's a lot of confusion and uh Part of the problem is a lot of clinicians don't really know there's not, it isn't manualized. So, you know, when somebody does psychoanalysis, they know what psychoanalysis looks like. When they do CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, they know what that's supposed to look like. And animal assisted therapy is a very adaptive 
treatment model. So you could do it with psychoanalysis, with gestalt therapy, with CBT, with DBT, with schema therapy. So it's the beauty is that it's so adaptive, but it's also a problem because it's harder to teach when there's not a formal script to follow. So animal-assisted therapy is really actually direct psychotherapy, or it could be depending on who's doing it, physical therapy, speech therapy, but it's direct therapy between a licensed professional and a client with set goals and treatment plan. And it is uh, recorded. So it's written down what the sessions are recorded. So the notes are taken on the sessions and each session is at least reflected on or in some way evaluated by the clinician. Um, So it's formal therapy with animals integrated into the therapy. However, there are other less familiar terms like animal-assisted activities and animal-assisted education, which is what most people think of when they think of animal-assisted therapy. That's when somebody has a therapy animal who usually has been certified by an outside agency like Pet Partners or Therapy Dogs International. And it does something like go with the uh, handler into a hospital or school and it helps facilitate some kind of therapeutic intervention like a dog that might go in and children who have read children who have learning disabilities are going to be more likely to read to a therapy dog because they feel less judged. There's less stigma. They feel more comfortable. So unless it is formally evaluated, unless there's a formal treatment plan with goals, it's not technically animal assisted therapy. Um, It's technically an animal assisted activity, but that is what most people think of. So, you know, I'm going to bringing a therapy animal, which could be a llama, a pig, a bunny, a cat, a dog. There's a variety of species that that are suited to it. You know, they could go visit an Alzheimer's ward in a hospital or traumatic brain injury ward. And the people are more likely to remember the name of the therapy animal than they are to remember the name of their own children sometimes because this bond is so powerful. So that's that's really, and then animal-assisted education is more like what we see in zoos where people are interacting with animals, but it's on a kind of education level. So it's more kind of instructional, telling them, you know, about the animals and the interacting with them at a, more of a distance. So that's interesting. And I think this is important for everyone listening. So it sounds like then you talked about animal assisted therapy, animal assisted activities and animal assisted education. And I think that's really like an important distinction because frankly, I, I, you know, I've, I've heard these terms before, but never really thought about the differences. So animal assisted therapy and what we're talking about today is really this it's integrated with some other form of therapy with specific goals by a licensed professional so you are integrating a dog or a pig or whatever animal into an existing relationship between a client and licensed professional and, and so you're integrating that into there so what most people think of therapy i think a lot of people think of therapy dogs maybe visiting um, like hospitals or visiting uh, seniors homes. And so what I'm hearing is, is that 
if it's just sort of visiting and there's no like specific goals, it's really just animal assisted activities, which can still be very great. And what, what we're specifically talking about today is animal assisted therapy. So integrating it with an existing like practice almost. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so when we spoke prior to the episode today, one of the interesting things is when I asked about where do you feel like animal assisted therapy is really impactful? And one of the, one of the areas that, that you mentioned was trauma. And that, that really, you know, it really made me think for a few days because I think most people have either dealt with trauma or know people who have dealt with severe trauma. And it really made me think about how, how this could be beneficial. So in, in what ways, like, what are the advantages that you see with animal assisted therapy uh, in trauma cases? Like what, like what is it that makes it, you know, impactful and, and efficient and, and effective in some cases? There are a number of factors that I think make animal assisted therapy so effective. For one, like I said, it's, it's an adaptive model. So you can integrate it with multiple styles of therapy. And that's, that's awesome because it's not stuck with one school of, uh, therapy. You can do it. Anyone can do it. But so a couple of things that make it super powerful are probably the number one thing is the therapeutic alliance that normally forms between the client and the therapist. So I'm talking now, You, like I said, you can't do animal assisted therapy with like speech therapists or physical therapists, but I'm speaking from a psychotherapy stance. Uh, the therapeutic alliance basically is how connected the client feels to the therapist. Now, if you don't trust your therapist, you're obviously not going to tell them, you know, your deepest fears or desires. You're not going to explore your feelings with somebody you don't trust. So when a, a therapy animal is in the room, it accelerates that level of trust and the alliance. So it forms like a triangle. So we know, like you said, that therapy animals, and I will default to dogs just because they're the most commonly integrated therapy animals. So if there's a dog in the room, like you said, dogs don't lie. They like you, they like you, they hate you, they hate you, like that's it. Um, And if they hate you, there's usually a really good reason. So if the client comes in and it's a new therapist, they don't know this therapist, you know, it's hard sometimes to open up to a new person. But if they see that there's this animal that is just sort of pure of emotion and the animal trusts the therapist and the animal is well taken care of by the therapist, then it gives the client the impression that the therapist will take care of the client as well. Hmm. So it creates a stronger and faster therapeutic alliance um, and helps create a rapport faster between the therapist and the client and and just increases that sense of safety. What Winnicott calls a holding environment, kind of like a mother holding a child, you know, just that kind of feeling like a hug, having an animal there, just purely having an animal in the room on a biological level actually increases the oxytocin levels in people and in the animal. So the animal benefits too. And that's very important because 
the therapy animal welfare is hugely important in this. We don't mm-hmm. want to force them to do anything. It's all voluntary. But so oxytocin is what we call the love hormone. So when a mother holds her baby or when people fall in love, that's that's oxytocin. That's the oxytocin levels get raised. And that's why when people break up, it actually hurts so badly because you're kind of going through oxytocin withdrawal. It's like a drug withdrawal. And oxytocin levels get raised when you interact with animals. And this is this is proven. It's it's happens more when you interact with your own pet, but it happens when people interact with any animals. So having an a therapy animal in the room just all around provides a deeper sense of trust and well-being. And it kind of cuts through, or it's almost like a shortcut. So people feel more comfortable, faster, talking about difficult things. And and in some cases, it's it's slightly easier to discuss the difficult things because there is somebody in the room who they know for a fact will not judge them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can never tell what any other human is thinking. You would hope your therapist is not judging you, but your therapist is a person, right? So, and in, in some people's experience, some people sadly have never been able to trust another human. So even if they want to trust the therapist, it might be difficult, but they know that that animal they can trust. So yeah. it makes it safer for them. And then there's a variety of other benefits. And actually, the uh, I'll add on to that, that um, there's been studies that show that it actually doesn't matter what type, usually, usually, it doesn't matter what type of therapy you do with the client, that you could do psychoanalysis, you could do CBT, which are polar opposites. And it doesn't matter what kind, the therapeutic alliance, that connection the client feels with the therapist is the strongest predictor of success in therapy. So it's having a therapy animal in the room is kind of like a shortcut. But then the animals also model for us resiliency, because look at a lot of the the Michael Vick dogs, right? They were horribly, horribly treated. And many of them went on to be therapy dogs and loving family pets. So some people say it's about how they're raised and it's not though. It's about how they are currently treated. And animals, like you mentioned before, are mindful. They're just living in the moment. So it's like, I'm eating, I'm eating, I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm sleeping, I'm sleeping. And humans, as humans, we don't do that that often. We get stuck in the past, which we call depression, or we get stuck in the future, which we call anxiety, but dogs are dogs, especially, but animals in general, they, they live in the moment. Um, like Eckhart Tolle says the power of now. And so having somebody model that I say somebody, but I mean a dog or animal having someone model that for us, uh, shows us how, how possible it is to live in the moment and how you can be sure you can be sad about something you can be mad about something but that doesn't mean you it has to ruin your whole existence there there is the next moment yeah and i was thinking too like it reminds me of 
Like when I have to have a tough conversation, say with a team member, you know, Sarah and I have noticed over the years is, you know, sometimes it's easier to do those conversations, like either on a walk or when you're driving a vehicle, like that sort of direct eye to eye contact and sometimes just make things feel confrontational, even when they're not. So I feel like even just having a dog in there, which can kind of just redirect some of that focus, like that intense one-on-one focus can probably help. That's something that reminds me of as well. And what would be examples of like goals that a therapist might set in a, because you say it's it's integrative, like what are some, yeah, like what, like what, what might be some goals that like a therapist might set that where like the animal can actually help? Like, are, are they the same goals overall? And we're just like using the animal to help get there? Or are we using animals like for specific goals? It, it really depends on the individual client. So we, as therapists, we tend to have one, maybe two um, overreaching goals. And then for each goal, we tend to have three objectives. And the objectives are operationalized and measurable. So for example, a goal might be with the client to reduce anxiety. And then, uh, like I said, we'll have objectives. And the objectives might be something like, When the client is feeling anxious, they will write in their journal for at least five minutes. Or the client will practice deep breathing three times a day. So potentially you could have an animal in these objectives and goals. Usually the the goals are just general broad categories and the objectives are things usually that the client can do when they are outside of a session. And that when you're planning for your session, you can keep in, the therapist can keep in mind that stroking an animal, whether it be a cat or a dog, can do things like lower blood pressure. There's a number of biological benefits. Spending time with animals can even lower cholesterol. Um, You recover faster from surgery. It can reduce the chance of diabetes. There are a lot of of benefits to uh, spending time with animals. So, and think think of stroking an animal like a person with, or I should say a child with a blankie, right? Mm -hmm. So like somebody who is, a child who is distressed might hold on to their blankie. Sometimes you see them stroking their blankie or a favorite stuffed animal. And so when they're in the therapy session, sometimes when they feel that they are starting to get dysregulated, which actually is a sign that they are making progress, right? Because therapy, you're you're not going to achieve anything if it's always a happy session, right? You need to, right. you need to be challenged. You need to be pushed. And so, but if they start feeling a little uncomfortable, you know, they they have the ability to reach out and stroke the animal to help self-soothe. And so that's an important part. So the animal might not be a part, unless they have pets themselves, the animal might not be a part of the actual goal or objectives, but might be more of a facilitator in the sessions. That, yeah, that's interesting, especially when you talk about, because really for learning to happen, there has to be some level of stress usually, right? So it doesn't mean, it d- doesn't mean you're stressed out of your mind necessarily, but like even like studying for a test is putting you through some sort of stress to learn things. And then so helping people have a way to deal with that increased stress in those sessions, like that makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering, is this usually the case where the dog is like either owned by the licensed professional or it's an organization that they work with, or 
is there sometimes where where you recommend that the the patient actually has an animal? And I'm sure that depends on lots of different things, like where it's happening and if they're capable of doing so. But I, that that was one of the, one of the things I was thinking about, thinking through the logistics of this, and kind of wondering: is it always just like a dog that's there at the office or at the clinic, or are there times where you recommend that people actually get a pet um, to help them with 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 things that they're coping with? Well, I think interacting with animals is always therapeutic. There are very, very few instances where it could be detrimental. And and in that sense, I'm just talking about people who perhaps have um, limited resources and they might get medicine for their pets instead of themselves. But if they don't take care of themselves, they can't take care of their pet. So there's some people that are stuck in that kind of dilemma. But other than that, usually any relationship with animals therapeutic. So I think most people should have pets, appropriate pets, not not a peacock in the airport kind of pet, but like, uh, you know, um, cats, dogs, bunnies, whatever it should be. Um, wild animals belong in the wild, not in houses. But therapy animals, it's not kind of regulated, but I, I strongly recommend that anybody who integrates animals into the, their therapeutic practice, um, their direct clinical practice, that they should have the animal evaluated and registered with a therapy animal organization like Pet Partners because they, they do very careful screening They teach you about the special needs of therapy animals, like make sure they have a place to escape if they don't want to participate, you know, how to read the animal's body language, because I have a background in animal behavior, but most therapists uh, do not. So they teach you how to understand the animal's needs as well. And they have additional liability insurance as well. Um, Mm. Because these are still animals, right? Right. And as much as we love them, you know, there's, they can't, like you said, they can't speak English. So they can't always tell us what they need. And just like a child might act out, if the animal gets frustrated, we have to be careful not to put the animal in a situation where they feel frustrated. Because if we do that, Mm -hmm. our fault. That's on us. That's not their fault. But... So I highly recommend that people, that therapists that are working with therapy animals get their animal evaluated and certified by a reputable therapy animal organization. That said, it's not a requirement for your license. So there are plenty of people that just bring in cute animals. I don't recommend that because those people don't know enough about this this model, this therapeutic model. It doesn't have to be an animal that belongs to the therapist. So sometimes therapy animal agency will send a therapy animal and their handler, usually the person the animal lives with, to work with an organization or clinic or the clinic itself. There are facility animals. The clinic itself might have custody of the animal. But I still strongly recommend that you know, that people really kind of work with these therapy dog agencies, such as Pet Partners or Therapy Dogs International. Pet Partners used to be known as Delta Society. It's one of the oldest therapy animal organizations because they really help people figure out what the right fit is. So for example, I have four dogs. One 
is a registered therapy animal with pet partners. The other three are lovely, wonderful. I adore them. They really are not suited for therapy animal work. So that helps people. But again, like I said, I have that animal behavior background, but most therapists do not. So that will help uh, people know what kind of training. Therapy animals don't require as much training as, say, a service animal Um, But they do need to have basic manners and that kind of stuff. And so people will learn more about the therapeutic process when they go through the training and evaluation. So I I highly recommend it. It's not technically required, but I do highly recommend it. Yeah, definitely. And and you touch on a good point, too, because, you know, having had, uh, you know, trained people who've gone through and done uh, therapy dog work with uh, Delta Society or Pet Partners or some of the other uh, or organizations out there, you know, what's really important if, if anyone's out there listening and they're, they're one, something that this may, this might be something they want to do with their dog. I think the the way I generally frame this to people is if your dog's appropriate in terms of that, they enjoy people, but they're not too aroused and they're okay seeing weird things like maybe, you know, people dressed up in weird, funny stuff, or like, they're just like, we call it in our industry bomb proof, right? And there's no such thing as a bomb proof dog. But for all intents and purposes, they're like, they see stuff and they're, they, they're just very resilient, like people very sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're, their heads aren't exploding every time they go somewhere new with excitement, right? Because <laughs> there, there are some dogs where like, you take them in a new place, it's like Disney World, which is great, but that's not really like an appropriate setting. There's probably going to be other outlets for, 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 for that dog with like competition, maybe like agility or different things like that, where you can use that arousal. The training pieces, like the, the uh, you know, the, the obedience portion of the training of, of therapy dog work is generally, I always tell people it's like, the vast majority of dogs it, it can do it. It's it's like teaching someone to read and write. They aren't complicated things. It's like, be, you know, walking politely on a leash and sitting politely for petting. And for anyone who's ever done like a canine good citizen uh, test, it's sort of like that on steroids, but but not much more so. I, f- I feel like the biggest thing is really making sure your dog has the right temperament for it. And that's what these organizations can do. And they're not being, you know, it's their job to make sure that they're picking out dogs who are going, dogs and owners who are going to um, enjoy those situations. But yeah, if anyone has a dog where you think that's the case, I think reaching out to Pet Partners or one of these uh, other organizations, and I I can put some links uh, in in the episode notes to make sure people can do that. But that's something where, yeah, if you're interested in it, then then, then that's the case. And if it's, you know, if it is a goal of yours, it, it can be really really amazing. But like you said, it really should be something a dog enjoys because otherwise it's just going to be stressful, um, which can either be in worst case dangerous or in the best case, just something your dog doesn't really enjoy. And that kind of defeats the the whole purpose. Of Absolutely. This. And I do, I do want to say that, um, you know, when people think of therapy dogs, a lot of times they think of a, a golden retriever or, you know, um, a toy poodle and, and it doesn't, it's not breed specific, which I love. So mine is a, my registered therapy dog is a bulldog Staffordshire Terrier mix. So he's, <laughs> he's, he's a pit bull and uh, he is lovely and he is funny and and he was adopted at five years old he was found on the streets at five years old and long story short he ended up with us 
we didn't know he would survive. He did. And he ended up being, like you said, temperament is people confuse personality and temperament. So personality, Mm -hmm. I get very frustrated when people say personality can't change because personality can change, at least in humans, with a lot of work. It's not easy to change. It's like quitting smoking, right? So you have to really work hard at it. You can change some of these bad habits that make up your personality. Temperament is really what you're born with. Like, are you easygoing? Like you said, kind of bomb-proof. Like everything kind of goes crazy and you're just like calm and, you know, you're the person that's level-headed and you go in. Like that's that's a great therapy dog. But it doesn't matter. You're, 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 you, you like won the, the lottery of like, your brain is saturated in serotonin, right? Like, what? like sometimes I, you know, I see dogs like every day is great for you. And like, there's no worries. Like I would love to have that brain, but yeah. And I think that's something where again, and what's so interesting about that is like, you don't, I'm assuming you don't really know the background of your dog for five years. It doesn't really matter. It's just sort of like, cause really all that matters is like, do they have the right temperament now? Obviously you want some sort of known history. You're not going to take a dog. You just adopted from a shelter 30 days ago and take them to a therapy dog class. Right. No, but assuming, no, you know, no. the we had, him for, <laughs> we had him for over a year before I got him evaluated and certified. Exactly. And I think, I think that's probably a good, a good rule. Like, you know, get, get to know them for a year, but um, people don't realize too, puppies are not suited for therapy dog work. I love puppies. They're adorable. I love playing with them. I love giving them back because puppies are teething and they're not housebroken and puppies are a lot of work and the therapist should not be so distracted. So really the therapy dog should be kind of complimenting and supplementing the therapy work. Um, The therapist shouldn't be so distracted from the client because they're taking care of this little puppy. And I had a client ask me once to bring one of my puppies in and she was just like, nibbling on this kid's leg the whole time because she was teething and it just and you know I was like that's the last time I'm doing that so there are you know what there are recommendations that like you said there's there's a few really great therapy dog agencies there's not just those two but um they do have recommendations like you know the dog should be over here so things like that and I will say that uh my dog, Chompy, uh, who actually teaches the class at NYU now, my students call him <laughs> Professor. He, we actually are certified as a crisis response team. Hmm. So they do use therapy animals to go to, it actually started with the Oklahoma City bombings. And it was 9-11 and multiple school shootings and things like that where People are, you know, in these crisis states and emotionally they're in a state of disequilibrium and just the soothing nature of the therapy dog can help them return to a more stable state. So less distressed. Of course, it's a, it's a scary situation. They're going to, to be distressed for a while, but they won't be completely decompensated to the point where they can't function. So the therapy animal helps them return to a higher level of functioning so that they can get things done. Because when people are in distress, they have to get things done. You know, if it's a hurricane, if it's a bombing, they, you know, they have to call people, they have to, you know, do things. And if you're emotionally distressed, you can't do things. So it it can be quite crippling. You freeze, right? 
like flight or people like to say flight or fright, right? But it's really flight, fright, or freeze. Um, so people might freeze and the therapy animal helps them return to a state where they can get those necessary things done. And then they can work through the the trauma later on. So it helps them cope for the moment. Got it. Yeah. And I think the other thing too was a couple of points. So one is for people who have puppies who are interested in this, I think the biggest thing is making sure you're socializing your puppy and taking advantage of working with a good, good trainer. And we, we can put some lookups to different uh, training organizations that certify that you're going to be li- li- likely to find someone good. But starting that so like that socialization early is probably a really big thing. And that means doing it right. So socialization and exposure are not, are not quite the same thing. So you have to be smart about it. And I, I would just say the other thing I would say is when I've worked with older dogs who are looking to do this, one of the most difficult behaviors to sort of undo and retrain is jumping up on people. And that's something that a lot of therapy dog organizations don't want, or at least not to do it unprompted. I know sometimes they might ask for the dog to jump up on a lap, especially smaller dogs or for larger dogs, maybe to put their paws up, but that has to be asked. So I always say like, if this is a goal of yours and it seems like from what you see from, from your puppy, and again, their personality is going to change when they had adolescence and they're a young adult and they have fear impact periods. There's all kinds of things that could, that could happen and, and potentially, you know, put you on a different path. But that's one where, Again, just lots of rewarding for keeping four paws on the ground and lots of ignoring for two paws up. Because I do, I have found that's probably one of the more trickier ones for people to undo later, even if their dog is good in a lot of uh, other areas. So that's just uh, something I've learned over the years. <laughs> no, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, people, people don't realize how much psychology goes into dog training. So it's actually the formal name is differential reinforcement of incompatible behavior. So if you teach your dog to sit, they cannot jump and sit at the same time. So it's, and, and I agree that socialization. So I would love to take credit for professor Chompy's calm demeanor, but he was probably just really well socialized as a puppy. And by the time he came to us, you know, we recognized it. And we have other dogs. Our other dogs have been very well socialized, but it's still, it's, it's not in their nature necessarily. Just like our cats, we have some cats that would probably do very well and some cats that are afraid of strangers. So it's like you said, it's it's a mix of these things. Absolutely. But training is is extremely important. And I think for anybody, to be honest, because it just it's it's a bonding activity that people can do with their animals. So it really reinforces and strengthens that human animal bonds and the people actually benefit from it as much as the dogs. But also it it certainly is much easier to live with an animal who is well behaved. Certainly it's, it's easier to live with a roommate who is cleaner than messier. You know, it's training and socialization are very important. And it's not to say that like, like I said, we got Chompy when he was five. Well, we don't even know how old he was. He was about five years old. I love ad- adopting adult dogs and senior dogs. Awesome, awesome. Love it. I'm just saying that it, it, and they do absolutely still have the capacity to learn very, very much. I was teaching my lab new tricks when she was 11 years old. But definitely, it, it not only strengthens uh, the bonds, but the dog has 
better manners, the humans happier. And I, I guess that's really a lot of what I do is, you know, if you help the human take care of the dog, then the dog's happy, the human's happy, everybody's happy, the therapist is happy, the husband is happy because the dog's not having accidents in the house or whatever, the landlord's happy, and it it actually really does resonate. So down to like the community can be better because if somebody is taking out, so social isolation can be a big problem with older adults. But if they go outside, if they're walking their dog and they go outside and they meet other people in the neighborhood, then they're making friends and connections in the neighborhood. And and if they're, like you said, training is vitally important. If their pet is out of control, that's going to hurt that relationship. But if their pet is, you know, well-mannered, then of course that will enhance the relationship with the community. So it, it, it ripples, it resonates and, you know, everybody benefits eventually. Yeah. And I was going to ask too, because this is something that I've, I, I, like a number, a number of years ago, I, I remember thinking like, I remember questioning how stressful it was for the dogs. And I had kind of like a, a welfare concern that we're putting dogs in these situations. And I was kind of surprised that actually a lot of the research that came out that said, like, it doesn't seem to be posing any long-term or serious stress on, uh, on the dogs. I'm sure they have, I'm sure they're like people where some days they go in, it's a good day. And some days they go in, it's a bad day. And there's, there's always going to, you know, it, you know, it doesn't mean it's always going to be stress-free but it sounds like they're not they're they're not in distress over this at least in the popular or the, the samples that this research was was doing and, and the only thing i can think of is is i feel like it must just be like a really good job with selection criteria that if you select appropriately and you have the right guidance then i think that, that then you're okay so i just wanted to touch on that point because like like you said a lot of people and this is a good segue to talk about how this can be integrated but I think one of the pieces is to make sure that this isn't detrimental to the dog. It's really important that there is someone at least helping set up these programs or, or evaluating dogs in these situations. And that, that that's why you have those organizations to make sure that dogs are appropriate. Because if we're just putting dogs in situations where we're raising stress, that defeats the whole purpose. So even though you might enjoy it and the guest might enjoy it or the client might enjoy it, if your dog doesn't enjoy it, that's that's really not fair. <laughs> right. And that's that's actually one of the current problems because like I said, since it's not manualized, a lot of clinicians don't know how to do it. So they're not aware of like the five freedoms of animal welfare, you know, where you should allow the the therapy animal or the animal to uh, choose to participate. You should always provide water. Um, they should be free from pain. So meaning no choke, no prong, no shock collars involved in therapy. Or if they just like got like uh, their their paws bandaged up, they probably shouldn't be going and doing therapy sessions Absolutely. like on that particular day. Absolutely. If they're injured, they shouldn't. They should, you know, be bathed and groomed for, you know, their health benefits and for the client's health benefit. And like, and you kind of touched on this, not Every client is appropriate to work with a therapy animal. People who have a history of abusing animals, you're not going to fix them by integrating a therapy animal into it. You want to take the animal's welfare into consideration. You want to save them from that situation. That's not a good situation to put an animal in. So there are some people that are just not 
suited, whether it's that they're afraid of dogs or they're allergic to dogs or or they have a history of hurting animals. Not every client is suited to it. But in terms of what you were saying, I'd like to mention uh, probably the most famous animal-assisted therapist that people don't realize was one. So Sigmund Freud was one of the first formal animal-assisted therapists. He I actually had, did not know that. <laughs> no, Sigmund Freud. So he had chows and his favorite one was Joffy. And he found that, first off, he brought his dog into therapy for himself because, believe it or not, he was nervous about being with some of these clients. So he brought his dog in to help soothe himself, to help calm himself. But he noticed and he noted that when the clients would get more anxious or more distressed, Joffy would move farther away from them. And when the clients would be calmer, uh, Joffy would move closer. So he noticed that, that, and this is one of the beauties of the human-animal bonds, and one of the reasons why dogs specifically, dogs and horses are specifically the best at reading human behavior because of this symbiotic relationship that goes on with dogs that doesn't happen with other species. They're great at reading human behavior. So Joffy would tell Freud how these people were feeling, even if the people couldn't verbalize it themselves. And then, believe it or not, Jaffe would, at the end of the session, paw at the door. He was a great timekeeper. He would say, all right, let's go. <laughs> and like, see you next week. But so the point was that, you know, you have to be aware of what kind of distress. So obviously, if somebody is getting a little anxious, the dog or therapy animal can probably handle that. But if it's somebody who is, you know, somebody crying a little, that's fine. Somebody who's totally going to go off the rails, um, totally decompensate, you know, of course they still need therapy. You still need support them, but they're probably not a good candidate for animal assisted therapy because you don't want to distress the therapy animal. Like you said, it's socialization, positive reinforcement. If you bring a therapy animal into every session where the therapy animal is scared out of their mind because people are acting erratically, they will start hating going to those therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. So you want to make it as pleasant for the therapy animal as you do for the client. Makes sense. And then so for people listening, so whether they maybe, um, we have a lot of different types of listeners, but if there is a licensed professional out there who is maybe thinking about integrating animal-assisted therapy, or if there are people out there who currently are in therapy and they're thinking about broaching the subject with their uh, licensed professional, like how do people get started in this? Like, sh should they just reach out to like a, a therapy dog organization or are there other resources? Like how would people get, get started? Because like you said, it's, it sounds like, I think in your research, you mentioned that most clinicians recognize the benefit of it or at least want to try it. So how do people make that first step? Because that seems to be like a missing piece of the puzzle here a little bit. It's a huge missing piece. And that's a big part of what I do. I'm trying to fill in that, that missing piece, a gap in service, we call it. Yeah, I think the statistics showed 92% uh, of clinicians believe it's an effective treatment model. And only 15% have received training in it. Um, so th that's a great question. How do people get training? 
So definitely reach out to a reputable therapy animal organization. Absolutely. Search out any information you can on uh, working with therapy animals, whether it be Aubrey Fine wrote an amazing handbook on animal assisted therapy that's updated every couple of years. A new one came out this year or last year, recently. He wrote an amazing book that uh, that gets updated frequently. Cynthia Chandler, um, Pet Partners has an annual conference every year. Oh, no kidding. They do. I actually didn't know that. It's super cool. And it's, I think last year it was like Aubrey Fine, Cynthia Chandler, uh, Victoria Stilwell, amazing conference. You know, so do the research, do the reading. I will be honest, my desk is currently piled with books. The Human-Animal Bond and Animal Assisted Therapy, and and they, they are great, but it, it's... It's not known enough, like you said. So do do your do your homework, do the research, and then some organizations like NASW, which is the National Association of Social Workers, has started offering some animal assisted therapy lectures and seminars. I I've lectured quite a few times at Bellevue Hospital at NYU. There's a couple of other organizations, PESI.com, P-E-S-I.com. They offer some classes. So, you know, do your homework and learn as much as you can. So unfortunately, it's a bit of an autodidact situation where people have to still kind of figure it out a little bit on their own. But the information is out there. And uh, certainly reach out to people. And there are some amazing certification programs. One of my mentors, Dr. Reese Van Fleet, and Dr. she runs it with Dr. Tracy Fod Thompson. They run an animal assisted play therapy certification program that runs mm. in Pennsylvania and in England. Okay. And it's, it's an intensive program. There's EGALA, which is an amazing equine therapy training program. And EGALA is not about riding the horse. It's about, it's beautiful. It's about, they give objectives, like we we're saying, but they have the people, they say, have the, have the horse walk through these two goalposts, but you can't yell at them and you can't lead them. Mm. So it teaches people how to work cooperatively with the animals on a nonverbal level because they can't, they can't negotiate, right? So Igala is a, a beautiful model as well. And, um, and I would say be, be careful about any kind of training or models you see out there where the welfare of the animal is not taken into consideration. There are dolphin experts such as Diana Reese, who is, speaks out against dolphin therapy because a lot of times the dolphins are kind of encouraged to participate even if they don't want to. So just just keep the animal welfare piece in mind always. But it's yeah, like I said, it's the information's out there. You just it requires a little a little searching, a little homework. But and and people are always free. If you want to provide my email, I'm, I'm happy to help. People are always free to to contact me. Okay, yeah, I'll put that in. I'll have your your information in the lesson notes, and then I'll also make sure. Yeah, if people like again reaching out to these therapy dog organizations, probably a good a good place. And I'll I'll also find the conference and put that there, assuming that we're allowed to have conferences again at some point, yeah, right. um, or, they, or or maybe they're doing online ones like 
some other people are now. So, so that's really great and perfect. This was part one of two of our talk with Dr. Catherine Compadus. Listen next week when we release part two on coping with pet grief. As always, follow us on Twitter at doglab underscore podcast or email us at doglab at instinctdogtraining.com with any questions or episode suggestions. 